If the Lord withdrew his presence from planet Earth, would there still be people who gather in churches and read Bibles and affirm doctrinal statements? If the Lord withdrew his presence, would there still be people with a biblical worldview? Tom says yes. Any other takers? That's, again, with the conflicting reports. I think I think I'm going to let Teresa speak for her. Teresa. Well, it's not possible, right? It's a theoretical question, not possible. But if uh, if Elvis left the building. If Jesus withdrew, religion in his name would remain, but there would not be a single Christian. Because our beliefs aren't what make us a Christian, and our practices aren't what make us a Christian. His presence is what makes us Christians. And with his presence comes beliefs. And with his presence comes certain actions. But neither the beliefs nor the actions is what makes us Christians, but only his presence. And if that's true, if it's, if it's Christ in you that makes this thing different from religion, that makes this thing really the real faith of Abraham, if it's not just the Jewishness, right? We just saw last time that it's possible to be outwardly circumcised, which is circumcision is the right of entrance into the believing community in the Old Testament. Anybody remember? Is this, does anyone remember what we talked about? The right of entrance into the believing community is circumcision. So here's the question. Does circumcision, if you're in the Old Testament, save you? And yet, it was the moment when you became a part of God's people, correct? It is the right of entrance into the believing community. So what is the right of entrance into the believing community for for Christians? Baptism. So circumcision was meant, outward circumcision is a, is a right that marks you that now you belong to the people of God. And the prophets talk throughout the prophets about circumcision of the heart. We talked about that last week with, from the book of Acts. We talked about Stephen saying that 
those people, like he was getting up in the middle of the crowd and yelling at the crowd angrily, which is interesting, like, hmm, confrontationally saying, you stubborn people uncircumcised in heart, stiff-necked and rebellious, you're just like your fathers always resisting the Holy Spirit. Well, uncircumcised in heart and ears, if I remember correctly. What's he saying? You guys are circumcised outwardly, but not this thing that it's circumcision is really pointing to. So the outward right, which marks entrance into the believing community, doesn't guarantee the heart, the attitudes. But the attitudes are what the outward sign is about. So it's possible, we saw this last time, to be circumcised in flesh, to be Jewish by birth, to be Jewish by lifestyle, to be Jewish by worldview, but not be saved, not have the faith of Abraham, not have a heart attitude of love toward God. Therefore, baptism doesn't save you, I'm sorry, circumcision doesn't save you, it simply grants you access into the community that has the knowledge of salvation. It grants you access into the community that that Paul describes in the book of Romans as a cultivated olive branch. It's It's a culture that God has carefully designed these practices and these sermons, these stories, these rituals. It's a theater for the soul that if you participate with the heart of faith, it will shape you into the saint. God has made you to be. It's kind of like marriage vows. You can get up and make your marriage vows in public, and that is the right of entrance into the marriage. But the wedding ceremony is not the actual marriage, is it? And how many people start well with the ceremony, but don't end well? Circumcision doesn't guarantee you're saved. It grants you access into the believing community that has the sacraments and the sacrifices. It has the stories that if you participate in all of those things with a heart of faith, they will greatly benefit your relationship with the God of Israel. So baptism is a rite of entrance into the believing community. I don't know that we even think that way. But baptism, like circumcision, isn't about the moment. It's about the life it's pointing to. Water baptism points to something far greater than water baptism. Circumcision points to something far greater than the moment itself. All right, I should read the verse. This is recap, but we're doing it anyway. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Colossians 2, verse 8, verse 9. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body, and you have been brought to fullness through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority, When you came to Christ, you were circumcised not by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, cutting away your sinful nature. So whether you're Jew or not, whether you're 
physically circumcised or not, Paul says the reality circumcision is about happened inside you when you came to Jesus. When you encountered, when you met Jesus, something died and something else was put there. Ezekiel talks about God taking out our heart of stone that's hardened, that's stubborn, that's cold, that's unfeeling, and instead by his spirit, having a heart transplant, putting in a heart of flesh. And uh, if you're like me and you don't handle medical stuff, the more you imagine this, the more your hands just kind of go limp. Because it's very like, oh. I was thinking about this, that Ezekiel prophecy about taking out your heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. And I was thinking about holding a human heart in my hand like, gross. Ew. Carrie, one day when she was in nursing school, she's like, I was a part of such and such surgery and I got to feel a blah, blah, blah organ with my hand. And I was like, no, you didn't. That's horrible. It's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. Goodbye. Click, you know. It's really vivid language. Ezekiel says, it's like your heart is made of stone, but God by the Spirit is going to transform what's inside you. And it's not you doing it. It's him doing it for you and in you and through you and to you. And then you will love him and then you will reverence him and then you will honor and obey his commands when that happens. And when does that happen? Ezekiel says it's when God makes a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's the circumcision he's talking about. Not with human hands. The cutting away of that, of that sinful nature is what the New International Version of the, of the Bible calls it. And the implanting of a heart that loves God, wants God, is responsive to God, is pliable to God. And then he says this. For you, verse 12, were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Say, oh yeah, he's talking about baptism. Yes, but he's directly connecting the sign to what it's really about. Guys, this, I've been a Christian since 1997, and this week, for the first time, I saw a connection I've never seen before. Is that exciting? No, you don't need to be excited. I'm excited about that. Here was the connection. I was still puzzling on the question of why circumcision? That's so weird and embarrassing and random. Same question as I asked last week, but I'm still puzzling over it. Here's, here's a thought. What was Abraham's promise? Father of many nations. Were him and Sarah having a lot of kids at the time? They were barren. I'm, this is a little graphic, but God marks the area on his body that is dead, that, is, that relates directly to the promise. This is how... The place of your powerlessness and barrenness and deadness is the place that I will supernaturally, miraculously bring about new life for you. And it says in Genesis 15, 6, and Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's marked in the very spot of his deadness as a sign of what? that I'm believing God and God's going to do the thing. Now, what's your promise? Is your promise to have a bunch of kids? Is that what God's promising us in Christ, a bunch of kids? Romans 10. If you confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth and in your heart, you believe what? That 
God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That God raised Jesus, so he's going to give me new life in the same way. And so where's your marking? Where's your place of death? Your place of death is on that cross. And where's your place of life? The empty tomb. The mark of Abraham's covenant is at the place of his death where God will bring new life. And his belief in the promise of the invisible God to do the impossible is what really changes his inner nature. We are marked through baptism. See, there's a reason we put our cross by our baptismal here. We go down into the water to signify we're dying with Christ. We come up out of the water to signify that we are being pulled out of death. Jesus didn't raise himself, y'all. God the Father raised him by the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't raise you. You don't change you. You can't do it. It's not you. The Christian life is impossible. It's not a self-help. It's not a more discipline. It's not memorize more Bible verses and then maybe it'll work this time. It's impossible for you. You must be born again. And what we're believing is God raised Jesus and he's going to raise me. What we're believing is he's going to put the life that raised Christ from the dead in me and he's going to raise me to new life so sin is no longer my master because I already died to sin. When? On the cross, 2,000 years ago, I died to sin. When was I raised up and made absolutely right with the Father? When he was raised up. Paul goes further and says, then you ascended into heaven when he ascended into heaven and that now that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, you are in him sitting at the right hand of the Father. Because you're in him, everything he did, connected to us, he did as us. My whole life I believed Jesus died for me, but I'd never understood that I died with him because he died as me. That was too much in one sentence. But I never saw that connection before, that Abraham gets marked with circumcision in that spot in his body because that was the mark of his deadness and the mark where the promise of God was going to bring him new life. And we're marked... In the, it, we're, our whole nature's dead. So we get the whole body going down into baptism to signify our union with Christ. And his, our promise is resurrection, new life with Jesus. Man, that sucker landed on me heavy this week. It's like, oh, now I get it. How could I not see that before? I must have talked more than 15 minutes because my iPad doesn't go off until I haven't touched it in 15 minutes. And it went off. So a couple questions here. Uh, if bap- does baptism save? Another question is, she says, no. I say, no, baptism doesn't save you. Well, then why should, it, should anybody do it if, if it doesn't save? I got... Friends in the Salvation Army, did you know the Salvation Army is an actual church? They don't just like collect money and give it to the poor and sell cookies and whatnot and ring bells outside Walmart. It's a real church. I love them. Started by William Booth, crazy evangelistic, bold. He came out of like alcoholism and met Jesus and he started God's army on the earth, basically. The Salvation Army was a serious evangelistic outfit trying to get people to meet Jesus and get free of addictions. Hardcore. But a lot of their folk with that background of alcoholism, they, they didn't want to have communion and get people trouble, reason to drink. Somehow they got it in their brain that since 
Jesus and faith in Jesus is what saves, they don't need to practice the sacraments. And so to this day, the, Sal- the Sallies, as we used to call them back in college and seminary, the Sallies don't use the sacraments. And one of my, 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 my advisor in college, am I talking too fast? I feel like I want to talk faster. My advisor in college, Dr. Reitmeier, was a Salvation Army theologian, happened to be incredible Bible teacher. He was trying to effect some change in his, in his denomination. He wanted them to practice the sacraments, even though the sacraments don't save. Just because just you can be saved without something doesn't mean you need to be. Right? You can get where you're going without cup holders in your car, but that, I still want them. You can get there without a whole lot of stuff. Air conditioning, right? Rubber tires, you know? You can, <laughs> there's a lot of things that are not essential but are still wonderful to have. Imagine, imagine someone who came to Pastor Tim and said, I want you to baptize me. And I said, why? And, and then you said, because I'm hoping that if I get baptized, this actually happened. The kids at school will stop being so mean to me. Well, yeah, that, that does break your heart. But that has nothing to do with baptism, does it? And I thought, okay, so what does that mean she thinks is going on here? That somehow this will be me making a deal with God and then he'll be on my team. That somehow that's going to change God's demeanor toward me. How are we tracking? That's some sort of magical ceremony that gets, you, gets God on your team. Lots of people think that. Lots of people think a lot of things about what goes on in the water. But that's a little bit like saying once we go through these marriage vows, then all these struggles we had as dating people are going to just disappear. He's a real jerk now, but once I marry him, I'm going to be able to fix him up. Or she's real mean and crazy now, but once I marry her, she's going to start acting right. You marry as is, you get any change, you're lucky. If it's hard to be dating, it's going to be even harder to be married. Run. Flee. I'm serious. That's the advice I give people. Flee. Get out now. It ain't supposed to be that hard. People, my love is work. Mm, not supposed to be that much work. Because once you're in, then you're in. Once you commit the covenant, then you're in. For life. No matter the cost. Well, not in our culture, because our culture doesn't understand anything about covenant. All we know is, if I feel it strongly, then I'll do it. And when I stop feeling it, then I'll stop doing it. Because we actually look to our feelings to tell us what's right and wrong and true. we got Christians, these people who think they're Christians, deciding what to believe based on what they want to believe. Instead of submitting their mind and heart to what Scripture teaches, even if they don't like it right now. Wow. Crazy. That's a different worldview to me. Right? And so I'm being, I'm being asked to, to defend biblical teaching as though I invented it and as though, I, as though I like, hey, I find what you Christians believe offensive. How dare you believe that? I didn't make it up. I'm not sitting over here going, what do I feel like believing? Hmm. I'm submitted to a whole body of, Okay. That's a different sermon. Don't do it, Tim. But what's going on? Is, there a magic, is it a magic ceremony? 
You already said it doesn't save, and I'm saying it's not a magic ceremony. My Catholic friends, God bless them seriously and deeply. By the way, and God bless my Salvation Army friends. May the Lord work a reformation so that they can practice the sacraments as the Lord Jesus himself gave to the church. That'd be awesome. They're amazing. Be a little better with the sacraments. My Catholic friends, God bless them, they believe in baptismal regeneration. That you might be a seeker, and when you have really counted the cost, then we put you in the water, and the moment we put you in the water, the Holy Spirit comes, and bam, you become converted. Regeneration happens then. Okay, um, man, I wish that were true. That would solve a lot of our problems. I could just shove a whole bunch of people in the water. Right? Kind of reminds me of a, a similar idea of infant baptism. It's like, dang, I wish. I wish it worked. That all the little babies we baptized would instantly be converted and they grow up and love God. I wish. Too bad it doesn't happen that way. Why? Well, because baptism and circumcision both work in a similar way. They don't save. What they are is they are the right of entrance into the community that has access to the salvation stuff. But how you respond to the salvation stuff, what you do with God, we're out here singing, right? You can come in here and not participate in your heart. We're singing. Your heart could just be like, whatever. You're getting no benefit out of it. Or you could fully enter in whether you feel like it or not and give your heart to the Lord and view that as an, a platform, an opportunity to give your heart to the Lord instead of getting tripped over about, you know, whether Tim sang on pitch or whatever or whatever's going on, right? It's like, did you, did you come to give your heart to him, to encounter him and to make sure that he had a good church service, right? That'll flip it right there. Whew. That's, a, that's the evaluation strategy for a good church service. Did we give him a good service? And that has very little to do with what we do on the stage. That means y'all's job is to give Jesus a good church service. Our job is to try too, but you have a part to play. Now, if you do, your heart's going to meet Jesus. I mean, even if we're not even saved. We could be idiots up here, you know, screwing up our whole lives. But you come in with a heart of faith in Jesus, Jesus is going to meet you. I hope we're not idiots, by the way. You know, <laughs> But you could be circumcised and be in the community and your heart be participating, right? Yom Kippur and, and the Feast of Weeks and all the different festivals and your, the, 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 you know, the Psalms of Ascents quoted all the way up to Jerusalem. When you, when you spent, you're, you're doing it with a heart of faith. You want to know the God of Israel. Boom, you're a real Jew because you have the faith of Abraham. You could, be a, you could be someone who's baptized, baptized in the name of Jesus because you said, ah, I don't want to go to hell. I'll sign the card, Sure. You sign the card. You attend services. But you think for yourself and you live for yourself. It's a lot of information about God, not a whole lot of direct heart-to-heart -heart contact with God, right? And then you go to hell. Most people go to hell. Luke 13, some people came to Jesus and they said, Lord, will only a few be saved? Does anyone remember his answer? He says, many will try, many, many will try to enter that narrow gate and not be able to. So strive to enter the narrow gate. Well, that's an interesting response. He could have just said yes. He actually made it more intense than saying yes, only a few will be saved. 
Lord, will only a few be saved? He could have just said, yeah. Now, if you add them all up, if you add up all the generations of the minority of population that actually is responding to God, walking with God, walking with God, walking with God, knowing God, it's a, if you add up all the generations, it's a vast number that no one can count. But relative to the population on planet Earth in each generation, it's a small group. And what percentage of those who show up at churches every Sunday are actually in? Dude, I don't know. I'm not the judge. I don't know. But just like a person can be outwardly Jewish but lack that circumcision of the heart done without human hands, you can be dunked in the water without experiencing the reality that that's about. And what's the reality that that's about? It's called spirit baptism. And as soon as you say spirit baptism, the Pentecostals and Charismatics go, yeah, that's what I'm talking about, speaking in tongues. Nope. Nope, so much more. So much deeper than that. Oh, it means doing carpet time. We go to the front, some revivalist lays hands on us. Woo, we feel the Lord's presence. We fall down for a minute. That's, ba that's baptizing the Spirit. Wrong. Baptism in the Spirit is the inner reality of having your life immersed in God. Having your life immersed in God so that your emptiness, your old life becomes emptied through repentance and his new life fills you to overflowing with who he is, which is, takes us all the way full circle to the question I asked at the beginning. What if God removed his presence from the earth? Would there still be people with Christian worldviews? Yes. Would there still be services held in Jesus' name in churches weekly? Yes. Would there still be giving campaigns and sermons on the radio and online and all that? Yes. But there wouldn't be a single Christian. Because a Christian is one who knows God and has the Spirit of God dwelling in their heart by faith. It's relationship with God that makes this thing real. Because like Abraham, who was completely powerless to have kids, you and I are completely powerless to know God. Honestly, we're completely powerless to love correctly. Here's a weird position I find uh, I'm not sure if we recognize this, like, to be baptized into Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, by one, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, and now all of us have been given the one spirit to drink. It's an interesting terminology, isn't it? Given the one spirit to drink. To drink. And then again, that triggers for some of us our Pentecostalism, where you're at a service and somebody hands you an invisible cup of something and they go, drink. And then you drink and you go, whoa. That's kind of helpful, but it's not helpful. I love Pentecostals. I really do. I happen to have some profound disagreements with Pentecostal theology. But I love Pentecostals and I love Charismatics. I don't know that I entirely fit within the Charismatic structure, but I love them. 
And the reason I love Pentecostals and I love Charismatics is because they're all in with the idea of we're here to encounter God. I don't know how you can read your Bible and come away thinking that it's not a menu inviting you to a feast of first-person experience of the God of the book. That's what I love about Pentecostalism and charismatic stuff. Does that mean I like everything about Pentecostal charismatic culture? Of course not. But any Christianity that is divorced from drinking of God, something's missing, terribly missing. You know what's missing? The only thing that we need, the presence of God. How are you saved? By praying. How do you grow? By praying and walking with this presence. I was talking to the, to the at GMS, to the high school, and I was quoting Luke 15, 1 and 2, where it says that now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to coming near to Jesus to listen to what he had to say. But the scribes and Pharisees were grumbling, saying, this man eats with sinners. And I was like, you know, where do sinners want to be? Like, just be honest. Where do sinners want to be? Do they want to be in church? They don't want to be in church. Do they want to be around Christians who are telling them, stop, please stop doing that? No, they want to, no. Do they want to be around scribes and Pharisees? Typically, no, because scribes and Pharisees have rules for everything. And the sinners are well aware that they're not able to live the rules. And, even, and some of them tried. The rules didn't work for them. It's not that they didn't agree with the rules. It's that they couldn't keep the rules. And something about Jesus was attractive. What is going on that these people have, the scribes and Pharisees are chock full of this book, chock full of this book. And sinners don't want to be anywhere near them. And Jesus is the source of this book. And sinners are just like, I can't get enough of him. All right, so I told this story the other night at youth, too, is when I was a little kid, one of the first times I remember experiencing God was there was a Wednesday night small group at my parents' house, and I asked my mom about this recently, and she remembered. She goes, oh, that was the coolest thing we've ever been a part of. She said, I don't know what made that, that, that group so special, but it was the, in our whole life, it's the coolest thing we've ever been a part of. I said, why? She said, we gathered, and all we did for an hour and a half is sing to God and pray over each other. I said, huh. Well, I was a little kid laying underneath your chair, just laying underneath your chair, and I loved this thing that would come into the room like an invisible mist while y'all sang. I remembered thinking how pretty your singing was. The men would sing one thing. The women would sing another in response. They all had good voices too. And the air would shimmer. And you would feel this peace. I liked that. And I told the kids, I also liked that that happened at youth group. Now, I was far from God and on drugs, but I still like to come to youth group on drugs. I didn't like when they talked at all. 
Because when they talked, it was all weird. Russia and China and the Antichrist and the one world government and the mark of the beast. And don't lust. It was all like fear-based end times, stupidity, and morals. It's all backloading a heavy cart called get saved and stop sinning. And none of it made me want to get saved and stop sinning. And the last thing somebody would do living in that worldview is actually fall in love with God because God is essentially some angry, you know, angry father who shows up at your door and says, I heard you what you've done to my daughter. You're going to marry her now. Shotgun weddings of Jesus. The vision is Jesus knocking on your door saying, let me in. And you're saying, why should I? And he says, because of what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. So when they stopped talking and they sang, this presence would come. And even on drugs, I loved that presence. Then they'd start talking. It was like, oh, here we go again. Manipulation, essentially. Jesus, when he would talk, that same presence that comes into the room would come into the room. That same energy, that same thing, that invisible mist, that peace, that thing that you don't want, you know, when that thing's in the room, you don't want to disturb it. Nobody's going to loudly belch or walk out or make crack a joke. They're all going to, there's a hush because no one wants to disturb that thing that's in the room. They want to, they want to honor it. They want to do what draws it more and they want to do what cooperates with it. And when Jesus would talk, that thing came in. When Jesus would look at you, that thing would come in. I mean, he's there, John chapter 4, getting a drink, or trying to get a drink, waiting for somebody who has a bucket to draw out of the well. And in just a minute, that presence comes into that woman's experience. And next thing she says, what? I perceive you're a prophet. Something different about this guy. How can he look at Matthew, the tax collector? Just look at him. Just look at him. One eye contact moment and say, you, me, let's go. And Matthew goes, I'm out. Guys, I don't know what's going on. Just deal with it. Deal with it. I'm out. What is that? So what is it that keeps then us you look at the context of Luke 15 that I was just talking about, what is it that keeps us, we start, most, many of us, like we actually start with the real God, knowing God, walking with God, experiencing God. We start as mystics, if you want to put it in those terms. We start as real Christians oftentimes. And we add and add and add this, which is meant to grow us up, and somehow we end up more like the kind of stuff I just mentioned in youth group. We don't know we've drifted, but we've drifted. I, I think it's possible to start in the place of God's presence and end in the place of being the scribes and Pharisees who fight against him, the God who we once loved. That, my friends, is the danger for us Christians. I think that's the danger. And, and if, there's a, if there's a cure 
If there's a cure for it, the cure to me seems to be to continue to spend time relating face-to-face, heart-to-heart with the God of the book, which means I'm not just going to read the book. I'm going to talk to God about what I've read. I'm not just going to talk about God and do things for God. I'm going to engage with the God of the activities I'm, I'm, I'm involved in. Like, it's got to be possible to finish well and start well, right? It's 11.58, so you know. This passage in Colossians 2, I don't even think it's about water baptism, is it? He mentions circumcision, but he's not talking about physical circumcision. He mentions baptism, and I don't really think he's talking so much about water baptism. He's talking about Jesus. He just said the fullness of God is in Jesus. And because you're connected to Jesus, the whole thing's already been done. If the whole thing's done, then does baptism add to the thing? If the whole thing is done by Jesus, does baptism add to the thing? Thank you, Carl. The answer is no. The whole thing's been done by Jesus, and baptism doesn't add to it. Baptism points to it. It doesn't save, but it does. It does join you to the church as those who've been made one with Jesus. And I would hope, I would hope that we would then throw ourselves fully in the stuff that God's given us that's meant to shape and form us as a people. We separated a while back baptism from church membership because we wanted to distinguish between the extremely important thing of belonging to Jesus and the body of Christ globally and the much smaller significant of committing to this local church. I still struggle with whether that was a wise move on our part. Because what I've seen is sometimes people go down into the water and they do not commit to deeply immersing in the community of faith and they don't grow and they don't change and they don't end up knowing God very well. And they often end up not even living a Christian life at all, but somewhere in the back of their mind they have it as a badge of something to depend on and trust in. Oh, I'm saved because I've been baptized. That, my friends, is scary to me. Right? No, you didn't live your baptism. Because baptism isn't the thing that does it, it's the thing that points to what does it. It's, it's Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's only Jesus. It's the finished work of Jesus. It's the finished work of the cross and the resurrection. It's who he is. It's received by trusting in him and believing and relating to and having a heart to heart connection and every single day living in the fullness of that. And the baptism is a call. That every single day, every single day, your baptism calls to you just like every single day. If you, really were, if you were to sit down and read your wedding vows every day, that would be a weird thing to do. But it wouldn't be bad because it would remind you of what it is that you've committed to being about in your marriage. 
Now, I'm not asking anyone to sit around every single day and think about what, they, what the meaning of their baptism is. But whenever you live by the Spirit, you're living out the meaning of your baptism. Whenever you repent, turn away from sin, and you walk with God and you love well, you let that, that presence, that sweet presence that drew sinners to Jesus flow in and through you, you're living out the meaning of your baptism. I've talked long enough. Go ahead and stand. Does baptism save? No, but it is very significant. And there's also people who are like, oh, I don't need to be baptized since I'm saved. Dude, what are you talking about? Why are you weird? The baptism is the public declaration of your yes to Jesus. Why would you not do that? I want to get everything I can from the Lord, but I don't want to fully participate in all the stuff he gave to shape and form me as a believer. Because <laughs> I know better than God. I'm smart. Good night, man. You couldn't stop that Ethiopian eunuch. And, or, yeah, Ethiopian eunuch. You couldn't stop that man from getting baptized. But Philip, Philip met him. Explain the way of Jesus. Man, right, right away, he's like, hey, look, there's a creek. Let's get, can I? And they stop the chariots, and they get down, and they do it right then and there. That, to me, is normal thinking. That's, how, that's normal. That's a normal way to think. Well, I don't need to do that. Why not? Well, I don't need to make a fuss in public. Oh, my goodness. Seriously, though? All right, that's enough ranting. Somebody take this mic away, mic away from me, or I'll keep talking. <laughs>